All right, let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're almost done with 1 Corinthians. It's more of a corrective book. I know it's always difficult to have, you know, talk about correction, but I mean, how else do we learn unless we fail? Amen? I mean, God usually doesn't work with parked cars. If we start walking out in our faith and tripping and falling, the Lord just kind of graciously directs us and guides us through His Spirit, through Spirit-filled people, through people who love the Lord, and that's what He's doing. He's guiding this church that, that was born again, that was filled with this Spirit, that desired to love Him, but just didn't know how exactly. And there's a lot of problems going on. And any of you have a family that kind of represents that? Boy, it would be great if we just were perfect, but that's not how it works. The Lord grows us up in us and trains us and matures us and is very patient with us and loves us. And so that's what he's doing with this church in Corinth. And that's what he's doing here in our fellowship. And that is what he's doing in each of our lives. Amen? Father, we give you time in your word. We ask that Jesus, as you prayed for the church, as you prayed for people, um, there in John 17, uh, you are asking that your word would be in their hearts and that it would bear much fruit and would bring you glory. And so, Lord, we ask that as we talk about your resurrection, Lord, and what that means in the life of the believer, that it wouldn't be just a theological thing, or, um, but it would really hit where we are living right now in our hearts and our minds and how we view things and so would you pierce any um any darkness any false teaching lord that has been placed in our hearts um would you protect us from false teaching would you protect me lord as i speak and uh, we want to see you glorified this morning as we read your word so permeate us lord Fill us with your spirit now. Allow that gifting to flow uh, in our hearts, that humility to hear, the humility to speak. And so, Father, we, we give you this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Chapter 15. This is now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Oh, questions right away, huh? And the whole, ch- the whole chapter's like this. Flip over to verse 12. This is what Paul is addressing. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul is addressing an issue in the church as he's been addressing all along that there are some within the church that are teaching there's no resurrection from the dead. If you remember back in Jesus' day, there was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two religious groups. You know, you had your <clears throat> certain group that believed one thing and then the Pharisees uh, that believed the other and the, and the Sadducees, they, guess what? They believed that there was no resurrection, and the joke is that's why they're sad, you see. So anyways, <coughs> I tell you, pastors have to scrape the bottom of the barrel for jokes. <laughs> so what we find out is that Sadducees, Pharisees, people with all different backgrounds are coming to Jesus, are they not? 
And so there's probably a group of people within the church that are come from a certain background, just as there are people within the culture that are bringing pagan practices that we already addressed, and maybe a, a, a disrespectful attire into the, into the group, or, or whatever it might be, there's culture influencing the church that is not in line with the kingdom of God. And so Paul wants to correct this really important thing that people are saying there's no resurrection, because that is everything that we place our faith in, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's saving this for the end to say, this is really important, everybody. And so he says, I want you to remind you of the gospel. And so he goes back to the beginning, the good news that I gave to you. The gospel means good news. And he's going to explain a little bit. He says, which I preach to you. So the gospel is to be preached. Any of you are taking notes, there's always no, there's no paper in the back there or whatever. If you want to know what the gospel is, you write gospel, and then you write, okay, what does he say about the gospel? This is how I study. Anybody else study that way? If not, it's the only right way, so just <laughs> let you know. Gospel. I want, to talk, I want to talk to you. I want to remind you of the gospel. It's important to remind the church of the gospel, the foundational stuff, often. It is the gospel that I preach to you. The gospel is to be preached. That means to be proclaimed. It's to be shared, right? which you received. And so the gospel has to be what? Received. You have, to, you have to believe it. You have to receive what it's saying. He says, you received it, and on which you have what? Taken your stand. That is the foundation. That is the foundation of a believer's life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of, of a believer's life. It's not that you go to church. It's not that you are a member somewhere or that you've done a bunch of good stuff. The foundation of our faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to explain what the gospel is. Now, all of us uh, who know Jesus, who have received Jesus, we know this has happened in our lives. We might not be able to explain it, but Paul's going to actually explain what the gospel is, what it is they've believed. He wants to remind them of it. He says, by this gospel you are saved. So it's preached, we receive it, we stand on it. That means that is the foundation for which we believe everything else. Why we live, what we do, how we are. And he goes beyond that, he says, it, it saves you. The gospel saves. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God Unto salvation. It's what saves people, first for the Jews, then for the Greeks, the rest of us, right? That's how the gospel came. Jesus came preaching to the Jews. Some of them received it, most of them rejected it, and then it went out into the world. That was God's plan. And so here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the earth, the gospel has been preached, and we have received it, and that's why we are gathered in this room together. And it saves. Saves us from what? That's very important. Very important. That means that people can be what? Unsaved, unsafe. And so people need to be saved. The gospel saves people from something that is very dangerous. And he goes, by this gospel you are saved, and he puts an if in here. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. What does that mean? It means that the gospel cannot be redefined. 
It does not evolve. It does not change. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Parts of it can't be taken out. They taught that the resurrection did not happen. And Paul's saying, if that's the gospel you believe in, your belief is in vain because that will not save you. Save you from what if there is no afterlife? If there is no judgment? Paul's making a case. And we're going to get into it, so I'm not spilling all the beans yet. And he goes on, for what I received. When a person receives the gospel, what do you do with the gospel? You believe upon it. You take your stand on it. You're saved by it. And then what do you do with it? Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you. The gospel is to be shared. Our culture says, it's awesome that you have received the gospel, kind of. It's awesome that you have your own little private faith, but you better not share it with anybody else because you're going to offend other people. And we live in a culture where truth offends. Truth offends. That's hard because the gospel is truth. What is the gospel? And he goes on. I received this and I gave it to you and it is of first importance. It's foundational. And here's the gospel three-parter. Ready? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. So everything left He's talking about all this talks about from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to where we are now is about Jesus Christ. So you have a book written thousands of years, in some cases, 1,500, 2,000 years before Jesus came about, and it was all written about him, every single page. As Byron often likes to remind me, if you don't know what's happening with in Scripture, if you're confused, throw Jesus in the middle, which I'm going to try to do in just a few minutes. Jesus is the reason in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, right? And the earth was without form and void, and God said, let there be light. How did he speak? John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning. Jesus was in the beginning. Genesis 3, 15, 16, 17, talking to, you know, the, the, the Satan who had messed up some situations. God allowed those things to happen. He says, you know what? You're going to want to you're going to want to strike his heel. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. What in the world is he talking about? Is he talking about a snake? Way back in Genesis? No, he's talking about Jesus. He's going to, you're going to strike his heel. You're going to get him. But guess what? In the end, he's going to crush your head, Satan. Flip the revelation. His head is crushed. We win. Woo! Because he won. Amen? The whole thing's about Jesus. The tribes, Marcus and I were talking about this the other day. The way that the tribes were arranged in the desert. Just like you're going, why are you going on and on about 40,000 tribes? And they were, they were here's the, the tent in the middle, and then there's 40,000 tribes or whatever it was, 40,000 people in a tribe, or 230 goes this way, then this way, and then they were camped this way, and then this way. And so you're reading this thing, and then all of a sudden someone in space is going, oh, <laughs> it's a cross. 
They didn't know, they didn't understand the way the ark was written. Why did God close the door? Why were only certain people saved and other people weren't? Interesting. Why was it made of wood? Pictures of Abraham, the Old Testament. Abraham took Isaac. Take your son, your only son whom you love, 2,000 years before Jesus came. Bring him up to this mountain, which I will show you, Mount Moriah, and make him a burnt offering. What are you talking about, God? Take a son who you love and bring him to a mountain and sacrifice him? What kind of weird stuff is that? And Abraham obeyed. He got up right away, and he brought wood for the offering. Isaac had the wood on his back, and he went up the hill. And he was about to bring the knife down in obedience, and God stopped him. And what did he say? Stop. This wasn't for God to find out whether Abraham was obedient. This was for Abraham, and it was for us to see the picture that 2,000 years later, in that same exact spot, a different father with a different son brought the knife down. He did not stop. The Lamb of God was sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. The whole Old Testament spoke of, speaks of, Jesus Christ. According to the scriptures, Isaiah 53. Flip over there really quick. We'll just really, or maybe I'll just flip over there. One of my favorite passages of scripture. Here we are. What, you know, I always get it wrong. Maybe 800 years before Christ. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him. What in the world are you talking about? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was what? Pierced for our transgressions. Who is he talking about? It becomes clearer. Back when this person was writing this, they had no clue what was going on. He was pierced in his hands, in his feet, in his side for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. What happened to this trial? Why didn't you say anything, Jesus? Why didn't you open up your mouth and, and, and blow them all away? You could have. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, and he was led like a lamb before the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is silent, and so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, his his grave he took. And yet, 
it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord made his life, and, and yeah, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, the resurrection, and the will of the Lord will prosper him in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. What is that? Couldn't be any more graphically detailed. Speaking of Jesus Christ and Paul saying that according to the scriptures, that's what the gospel was. It all happened according to plan. The thing about God is he tells the end from the beginning so that we would believe upon him. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going to happen because he's eternal. He knew we would sin. He knew we would blow it. He knew we would be rebellious. And yet he loves us and sent his only son to pay the price. He died for our sins according to scripture because God has a just he is just, and he will not let sin be unpunished. We cry out for the injustices all across the board around the world. There's people who are, are you know, evil that are, are, you know, being totally getting away with murder, you know? There are people who are totally innocent, who have nothing, and there's just so much injustice in the world. God is not unjust. In the end, he will level the playing field. Everything will be brought to light. It'll all be before him. All sin will be, you know, will be, will be exposed and judged and all those things that, that is coming upon the world. But you see, Jesus, he willingly took all of that and put it upon himself because that was the Father's will that anyone who would believe upon him, he took the punishment for us, would have everlasting life. That's what Jesus did. How many of you need all the darkness in your lives just done away with, put on the cross? That's where we find hope. I mean, we talk about evil in the world. What about evil in my own heart? Anyone? The things we think, the things we say, the things we want to do, the things that, the hidden things that God will expose and judge to those who are not Christ Jesus. Yeah, everybody's going, ooh, ooh. How'd you like that on the screen? No, thank you. These are the deep things. For what I received, I passed on to you. It's first importance that Christ died for our sins. There must be a punishment for sin. God is, that's the way he set it up. What is sin? Sin is going against the way, uh, going against God's will. Going against God's will. So what would be important? How do you know God's will? By what he says. And what is the major attack? From the very beginning in the garden, Satan said what to Eve? Did God really say that? God couldn't have written all that before because it's too accurate. There must be another explanation. And so you have all these people who really haven't read it, espousing all these things to support their darkness. Because God's word, it exposes us for who we are. And the purpose of exposing us for who we are is to draw us out of darkness into light, to receive forgiveness and have eternal life. That's his heart.
How cool is that? Not very fun in the beginning because it requires admission. And that's the problem with man, with us, is pride. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. We talked about that. He was put in the ground. He was dead. You know, it could stop there and Jesus could be named among all the other um, religious leaders that have ever existed. They lived and they died. And then what? I mean, look at Muhammad. He lived and he died. Influenced a lot of people, is influencing a lot of people, but he lived and he died. He's not alive. Think of Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon Church. He lived and he died. Think of whoever you want to, of whatever religion you come from, they live and they die. Why do we die? And this is what Paul is talking about. Why is there death in the world? It's a result of sin. It's the ultimate outcome of our rebellion towards God is death. That's what happens. And God has the antidote. It's his son, Jesus Christ. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. See, it didn't stop. The gospel is that he died for our sins. Yes, he died and took away the punishment for our sins. But anybody could claim that. No, he rose again on the third day. He was alive. My Savior reigns. The leader of this church is alive and ruling from heaven. He's not in a grave. He was raised. He's different than any other man that ever lived. Verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas. Well, okay, great. You can say Jesus rose from the dead. And I have a billion dollars in a Swiss account. Right? You can say anything. Imagine no communication. How do we know that 9-11 actually happened in our country? We saw it. There are people who were born afterwards that did not see that, that are living right now. How do they know it really happened? There were witnesses. There were people. We have the ability to record stuff now. They did not. And so how is the world to know something happened? People would witness something. They would share it. It was recorded. Well, how do you have to... In Jewish law, you have to have two witnesses in order to establish something in a court of law. You have to have two witnesses. That's why more than one witness came up against Jesus and told him. Paul's just going to go witness to the tenth power because this isn't something that just happened. He says, first the Lord rose from the dead. Okay, great, Paul, so what? No, he appeared to Peter. Remember Peter? And everybody knows Peter who he's talking to, right? Peter, he, ro- he rose and he, and he spoke, spoke to Peter. He appeared to Peter. Well, it doesn't stop there, does it? 
And then to the 12, we know there were 11, and then one more came along, right? But the 12 was just like, it's like saying the Beatles. It was the group of them, whether one passes away or not. The 12, he appeared to the 12. So that's another group. Okay, well, great. Well, they're all in cahoots, right? And after that, he appeared to more than 500 people. 500 people all saw Jesus. Wow, all at the same time, at once. Most of whom are still living. Go talk to them. Go, go, go talk about the accounts. So, ready, this morning I'm here, and if people were to ask you what happened this morning, they could talk to any one of you and get a perspective on what happened. It'll be different. It'll be something, you know, I mean, according to each one of you, but it will be that there'll be a common story, a theme that is brought together through what's going on. That's what Paul's saying. Hey, he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500 people out there. And he goes on. There's a lot of witnesses here. This isn't just hearsay. And sisters of the, uh, brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, go talk to him, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died. And then he appeared to James and to the apostles, James, the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the church, and the, the apostles, so other apostles, other than the twelve, there are more than just the twelve. And last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Remember, he got, fell off his donkey, and Jesus appeared to him. It's interesting, if you go to secular history, how many of you like hunking through a book like this, talking about different emperors and what they were doing on specific days and specific times. It's kind of fun. But you find out a lot of stuff about people, the good, bad, and the ugly. This guy, Josephus, he was a Jewish guy who was Jewish-Roman. He was a historian up until around 100 AD. He was writing about all the time, during, uh, about witnesses and accounts of all these things that are happening. And smack dab in the middle of, not that page, this page, Antiquities of the Jews, 18.3.2, or point three actually, just for those of you who are taking notes, I know you are. He says, now there was at this time, and this is after he's talking about Pilate and all the other things Pilate was doing that didn't involve Jesus. He's talking about Pilate, the person. And he goes, now, there about this time, there was a, there's a guy named Jesus, a, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher such as men as receive the truth with pleasure. And he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those, had, uh, those that loved him at, the fir- at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive um, again the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so, the name from him, uh, from, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. About the this, about this same time, also another calamity put the Jews into disorder, the certain shameful practices that happened around the temple of Isis at Rome. You see what I'm saying? Context. He's just going down, talking about history, and goes, boom. About this time, there's a guy named Jesus. He was a Messiah. He rose again on the third day. His people are still around. This is an important historical fact. Continues on talking about Pilate, because Pilate had a direct influence on that. Secular history even records, Jesus rose again. 
Amazing. People saw it. And this is Paul's point. It's not something that was made up. He goes, for I am, and last of all, it appeared to me, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and did not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, Acts chapter 9. But, the great, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm an apostle by grace. That's all we are, what we are in Jesus Christ. We did not earn a thing. We did not deserve a thing. I'm a pastor by the grace of God, period. Amen. You are what you are by the grace of God, period. Amen. But, my gra- but his grace to me was not without effect. Grace changes people. Grace motivates people. Grace moves people. No, I worked harder than all of them, harder than all the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed, the gospel. And verse 12, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that Jesus is, uh, uh, that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 12, 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What are we all doing here? More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. What we're saying is false that Jesus rose from the dead. That was their message. For we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But he, but he did not raise him from the dead, if in fact the dead are not raised. He keeps saying this several different ways. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ Jesus has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus isn't alive, he's just like any other guy. He doesn't have power over sin. He said he had power over sin. Well, guess what? The same thing that got us, got him. He's just like us, so what? But he did. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. The people have gone before you. They're gone. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most pitied. What in the world am I taking all these beatings for if there's no reward? This is kind of what he's getting at. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, who have died. It means Jesus rose first, and therefore everybody will be raised after him. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Who's the first man he's talking about? How did death come into the world? Through a man named Adam. Thank you very much, Adam. And we, because we are all related to Adam, Death that came through him flows through us. We are by nature children of wrath. I didn't get to choose that. No, but you, get, you choose it every day now. Why do you choose it every day? Why do you choose to sin? Because you're a sinner. That's why I do it. Did you ever know that? Because it's my nature. That's what I do. Anyone else? There's a propensity towards it, isn't there? You know, Miles and, and, and 
the, the Olivia and the girls, you know. I'm, I'm, they're just naturally good, aren't they? You don't have to teach them right, do you? That just comes easily. Obedience is not an option. It just happens, right? No, you are constantly like running yourself ragged trying to conform them, right, into your kingdom. And they are cute and they're fun, but they're little sinnerlings. <laughs> just like my kids and everybody else in this room that grows up, right? They've got their own kingdom going on. Anyone? Totally. No. Our nature is sin. But we're also created in the image of the Father. and we, de- we have desire for relationship and desires of good things. But Adam decided to go, you know what, my kingdom instead of yours, God. And he followed his wife in suit. And that's the human race. And death came in as a result. Sin is the sting. Death is, is the result. Death is what happens. The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Eternal life also comes through a man. Sin came from Adam. But guess what? Eternal life comes from someone else, a different Adam, the second Adam. Paul talks about in Romans. For, verse 22, For as in Adam all die... Statistic, you want to write this down? 100% of people will die. (laughs) Right? Some a little bit before their time, some after, but we're all going to die. Why? Because we're children of Adam. But guess what? For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, those who are in Christ, so you can either be Adam or in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. The second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be a resurrection. Verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. So there's a plan working out right now. There's dominion, power, and authority that are anti father, that are anti-Christ, that are anti-kingdom. Satan is a dominion, a power, and an authority. Sin is a power in our lives. Death is a power in our lives, and these things will be overthrown, put under God's rule. For he first must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. So there's a plan going on right now. God is putting his enemies under his feet. That's what's going on. He must reign. And I believe he's talking about here that thousand-year reign. When Jesus returns, we will be resurrected. We'll reign with him a thousand years on the earth while Satan is locked up. This is Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 7 through 10. And at the end of this time, he will be released. The world will once again gather And then finally, God will just open his mouth and Satan will be dealt with and he'll be cast in along with death to the lake of fire. The last enemy to destroy is death. You can read all that in Revelation chapter 20. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says that everything must be put under his feet, under him, it is clear that he's not talking about 
the Father, God himself, who put everything under Christ. God in, is referred to as God the Father there in verse 24. He's talking about God the Father. So Jesus is given authority. He's given power. He's given dominion. He is given uh, a plan and an ability right now to go ahead and bring the kingdom, bring the man's kingdom under the authority of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus went around preaching. The kingdom of God. That sinful men would leave their kingdom and join God's kingdom, which is an eternal kingdom. And if they don't, they stay in death and will suffer the consequences. That's why God loves you. He said, I love you. I want you to come to my kingdom, my kingdom of life. You have a choice. My son made the way. He pardoned you. Will you receive the pardon? If you refuse to receive the pardon, there's no hope for you. Remain in your sin. And judgment is coming but that's not what I want. God's heart was beating so hard for this world that he sent his only son. How many of you would do that to people who hated him, who despised him to redeem them? That is love. That is love. It's powerful. But he's saying that the Father is not going to be put under submission of the Son. The Son is under the authority of the Father. How can it be that God the Son, how can Jesus be God if he's under the authority of the Father? How can they be equal if there's a different authority rank? And this is the question. And this is what I like to talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses about, especially when they're husband and wives. And I go, well, obviously your wife is less than you. Obviously your wife is created you know, it's not the same as you because she's, she's a woman, right? And you're the guy and you're, God's given you the authority, so therefore you're not equal. Correct? And they're going, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, exactly. Jesus can be submitted to the Father and yet still be equal, can they not? It's about authority. It's about how things work in their relationship. The family is the example of the Trinity. Pretty wild. Jesus is submitted to the Father, his plan, his will. And, that was, and that's what he's doing. So Paul's saying it's not that Jesus is going to put God the Father. No, that's not how it works. When he's done this, the Son himself, verse 28, will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all and in all, that there may be this relationship that they had before eternity. Father, I and you and you and me, and I want them to have that experience of being in our kingdom, our fellowship, our love, the way we do things, that we may be all together in unity. And that's what Jesus came to do, is to bring you into the family, to experience his love. John 17, read it as powerful. His unity, his way of doing things, which is life. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? I don't know, Paul. What are you talking about? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Paul, thank you so much for throwing this weird thing about baptism of the dead. You were going great, and now you lost me. Two, there's 200 different interpretations of this verse. You're lucky, because I have the right one today. <laughs> so, I know it. <laughs> There's a lot of them. What's he talking about? The baptism from the dead. One interpretation is that there was something weird going on in the culture. And Paul was just pulling something from the culture and going, look, even secular people believe there's an afterlife. What are they doing? 
That might have been one interpretation. But the way I kind of lean towards it in the context is the dead would be, if, God, if Jesus is dead, why are you being baptized for him? Take it or leave it. It's confusing. If you're going, eh, what are you talking about? I feel the same way. I feel the same way. I'm, I'm kind of confused on this. Paul, obviously the people he was writing to you understood what was going on. I don't know. But I'm feeling that he's saying, now if there's no resurrection, what will those who are baptized, uh, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Why are you being baptized for Christ if he's dead? What is baptism a picture of? Baptism is a picture of us identifying with Jesus' life. Why are you having baptism services if Jesus is dead? Going down into the water, let's just do that part and you just stay there. That's not the baptism service. You come back up. Why? Because Jesus rose from the get dead, and so will you. So I uh, don't know much about that. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why am I going through this crazy stuff? He's talking about physical. Why do I, I it says I, I face death daily. Some says I die daily. This isn't talking about I spiritually die daily. It's I face death, the mortality, day after day. People are out to get me. Why do I do this if there is no afterlife? Verse 32. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what would have I gained? So there was an experience there, either with little beasts or with the thing that happened in Acts chapter 19 where they were attacking him. If the dead are not raised. If... If I'm living like this, if I'm living for Jesus, if I'm being persecuted, I'm speaking truth into a culture that doesn't want to do it, they're hating me, they're throwing rocks at me, they're chasing me down out of cities. If I'm doing that, why am I even doing that if there is no reward? He says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Amen? Let's just, if there's no judgment, if there's no afterlife, if, what are we doing? Let's just go ahead and party. And guess what? That's what the world's doing. And that's what often happens to us when we take our eyes off the resurrection. We eat and we drink and we live not in light of eternity. He says, do not be misled. Bad company, verse 33, corrupts good character. He takes a line out of a Greek poet's play, Menander. Just come back to your senses as you ought to and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God. And I say this to your shame. And then we'll, we'll stop here, but verse 35. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they, will they come in? Now there are no stupid questions, but apparently this is one of them. How foolish. So <laughs> you should know this. And you should know this. Remember, I was talking to you. And so Paul is going to just quickly explain through the rest of this chapter. What? Well, what? Uh, well, if there's a resurrection, how's that work? He says, "Guess what? It's like seed you put in the ground. You put a little tiny seed in the ground. Does it come out a seed? It comes out something different. And that's what he's saying. Your human nature, your human body, is going to be sown into the ground." But you're not going to re-reap. You're not going to have a, a, a physical 
an earth, a natural body. It's not going to be like this one. It's going to be a spiritual body. It's going to be different. It's going to be like Jesus' body after the resurrection. So yes, you'll be able to have a hamburger. <laughs> that's, I know that's what you guys are wondering. <laughs> and soon, by the way. <laughs> it's going to be a different body. You'll be able to go through walls and time travel and, t- and all that stuff. So I don't know. Listen, when we live like there is no eternity, we are missing all that God has for us. This is not it. This is not our home. And yet, we live like it. And we live like it because we're living through natural eyes and this is all we've seen. The life of faith says, I am storing up for myself treasures in heaven. I am living in a way that my investments are going to work out up there. I'm living in a way to where my time, my resources, my thinking, my family, my life is all in light of the resurrection that I will one day be in his presence and will give an account for what I've done in this body. And my desire is to live as he lived and to please him. And so everything else we do, everything else we do is funneled through that. What will bring you glory? What will bring you glory? What will bring you glory? Does this decision bring you glory? And if you don't know the answer, you seek it out. You ask for wisdom. Does taking on this endeavor bring you glory? That's what we live for. We live to glorify the Father. We live to bring him glory because that's what his kingdom is about. It's all about him. It's all about pleasing his heart. It's all about worship. It's all about obedience. It's all about love. It's all about, and if you're going, oh, that's so boring. That's your flesh. That's the part that's going to go into, that's going to be punished. You know I mean? That's the part that God, not going to be punished, that's the part that Jesus died to save you from. Make sense? And then he sent you his Holy Spirit to change how you think about those things. And as you allow the old man, the old ways of things to be put off because the Spirit is saying, just come and pray with me. Come spend time with me. Yeah, Lord, but I've got to catch up on something that's not eternal right now. It's really important, God. But I'm drawing you, the King of King and the Lord. This, and there's this war that goes on within us. As we give more and die to self, as Jesus did, and say yes to God, then that grows. And our minds are renewed. And the way we think about people, the way we think about relationships, the way we think about politics, the way we think about eternity in our lives, and all this stuff starts to be put in perspective of the kingdom of the Father. And spiritual stuff starts to become exciting and you start to hunger and thirst for righteousness you hunger and thirst to pray you hunger and thirst to share you hunger and thirst to help people you hunger and thirst to please the father because that is your life that is your kingdom that is what you are all about and the secondary things of life aren't as important sure we can do them and have fun and And it would be legalistic to say, you can't do this, you can't do this. No, you just be governed by the Spirit. The more we are governed by the Spirit of His church, life happens. 
but you will be a miserable Christian. I speak from experience. You will be a miserable Christian if you are trying to live a life after God in a life of the flesh. It will not work. You cannot serve two masters. You will have one dominate over the other. And Jesus says, that is not your life I have for you. When you received me, you gave up authority to all. And this is why Jesus, I know we're going over, but this is why Jesus said to you, unless you love me more than all these other things, you cannot be my disciple. More than sports, more than gardening, more than guitar, more than entertainment, more than uh, whatever, your kids, more than your wife. You would even take the example and say, unless you hate them, you cannot be my disciple. What's he talking about? Go hate them? No. He's using the extremes. He's saying, I've got a rule. And when you let me rule, because I am your creator and your designer, you're going to find what you were really made to do and to be. And you will have my joy, and you will have hope, and you will have healing and love and all these things will flow as you are abiding in me. And the world says every other thing except for self-denial. Why do we wait to get married? Because God designed it that way. And that's what brings him glory. Why do we, you know, go and risk your body to to be burned at the stake because of love for people. Why? Because Jesus did the same thing. That's how we live. So church, live in light of the resurrection. We'll talk about it more next week. Father, pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, help this word become a reality in my life and more and more in the life of the church. Forgive us where we are governed by the flesh and help us as your sheep just to hear your voice and do what you say and to love deeply. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.